0: Hey, friends, I'm Jenny Meyer, and you're listening to The Rooted Truth Podcast, where we look at the world through a biblical lens. We talk about real life, biblical truth, and how to walk with Jesus through it all. Be sure to follow me on social at Jenny Meyer and at The Rooted Truth. Also, be sure to subscribe to the members-only, all-exclusive episodes on The Rooted Truth Podcast by going to www.therootedtruth.com. Now let's get started. Hi friends, welcome back. Oh my gosh, I am so excited for today's interview. I have with me Douglas Van Dorn, as well as a co-host, Pastor Mark Hammer. Douglas Van Dorn is the author or editor of over a dozen books, including Giants, Sons of the Gods, The Unseen Realm, Q&A Companion, The Angel of the Lord, and so many more. Doug has pastored the Reformed Baptist Church of Northern Colorado since 2002, and he helped start the Reformed Baptist Network. He has co-hosted the radio show Journey's End in 2011 and 2012, as well as the Pure Normal podcast with Dr. Michael Heiser from 2016 to 2021. He currently hosts his brand new podcast, Giant Steps. You can find Doug at his website, www.douglasvandorn.com. I am also so excited to be interviewing Doug with my guest co-host, one of my pastors, Mark Hammer. Mark has been in full-time ministry with his amazing wife, Lindsay, for almost 18 years. He is currently one of the teaching pastors at North Summit Church in Sandpoint, Idaho, and has been pastoring there since 2014. Mark also oversees the community team of staff who head up the major connection and discipling environments at the church. In Mark's spare time, he loves being with his family, reading books, discussing the Bible, and hiking and backpacking while searching for Bigfoot. Let's dive in to this interview with Doug Van Dorn with my co-host, Pastor Mark Hammer. Welcome Doug and Mark. I keep wanting to say Pastor Mark because Mark is my pastor and I have with me Doug Van Doren. I am so, so excited for this episode and diving into uh, really Revelation 20 and the concept of the millennial reign, Satan being bound. So welcome to both of you.
1: you. Thank you very much. Look forward to this.
0: Yeah. Um, Doug, like I said, prior to recording, I have heard this topic a lot lately um, and listened to you on a couple of different podcasts. Obviously the Boy Creatures podcast, I love them and um, wanted to get you on to talk about this topic because my audience is is really into learning more about end times. And I think a lot of people really are obviously with the state of the world that we are in, but I wanted to dive into Revelation 20 um, and specifically Satan being bound for a thousand years, what that means, um, and have you really kind of walk us through that. And I know, Mark, you have questions for Doug, too. So let's just let's just get started and dive in.
1: Okay, let's well, let's read the first uh, three verses. Uh, It says, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven So this is the uh one place in all the Bible that we learn about a thousand year period of time called the millennium. The only place that we have it. Now that doesn't mean this is the only place that it talks about it, but it's the only place that it uses that language. So this is why it becomes difficult and we have di- you know different views on on the nature of the millennium. So just to briefly go over those those views, there's essentially well there's in one in some ways there's two views and in some ways there's three. And in other ways, there's four views. So the two views would be premillennialism and postmillennialism. You can divide postmillennialism into two types. Um, one would be called amillennialism and the other one would be called postmillennialism. And then you can divide premillennialism into two types. One is historic premillennialism. The other one is dispensational premillennialism. So what are we talking about when we are talking about the millennium and this idea of millennialism? So it The pre and the post really has to do with, is Christ going to return um, before the millennium in the second coming, or is he going to return after the millennium in the second coming? So premillennialism believes that he will return before the second coming, um, before the millennium, and then post-millennium believes that the millennium will occur and then Jesus will return in the second coming after the millennium. Okay. So there's differences in all these, but. That's the that's the easiest way to think about it. Now you know I grew up as a dispensationalist, yeah. and so I I only heard pre, mid, and post trib tribulationalism Like yeah. I didn't even know there was different views of the millennium. I had no yeah. clue. Nobody ever even said that. So yeah. when I when I came upon this later in life, I was kind of blown away and decided to shelve es- eschatology for a long time until I could wrap my head around these other views. So. Uh, And and I think this can be hard for people, especially if they grow up dispensational, because, you know, it's like you don't even question the the whole idea of the millennium. You question when is the rapture going to be? And that's Mm -hmm. it. But this is a, you know, this is a bit more complicated than just what what I grew up with in dispensationalism. So, yeah, I don't know know how much you want me to talk or if you guys want to interrupt or whatever. So up to you.
2: Yeah, all I was going to say is, uh, you know, growing up in the 90s with the Tim LaHaye Left Behind series and all that, um, I actually read that before I read Revelation. So everything was going yeah, exactly. through the lens of, of Tim LaHaye instead of allowing Revelation to speak for itself and and kind of judging um, these external sources up against it. Yeah,
0: same for and me. I think
1: that's the experience of a lot of people. Yep. yep.
0: yep. Yeah, I mean... That that series sets the precedence for, I think, for so many. Yeah, growing up in the, in the 90s, same thing. I read those books. I even, it was funny, I was just talking to my 15-year-old daughter, just with everything I'm learning about Revelation, and she's, and, and, and she's overhearing conversations with my husband and I, too, and I'm like, Left Behind series is so wrong. And she's like, wait a second, you had me read those like five years ago. <laughs> I'm like, a lot's changed, a lot's changed in that time, so...
2: Uh. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's an it's an exciting story when you read those novels. They're they're exciting. Um, they're captivating. Um, and when you tend to start with that, and then you move to the book of Revelation, and and you at least see it through through my lens. It's it's not that it's no longer exciting, but it's vastly different. It's not as suspicious, I guess you could say. I don't know. Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, maybe before we get into totally about this thousand years, Doug, um, a couple different things. First, the early church fathers, did they hold to a certain view Did that you, that you know of? Did they go along with kind of this historical premillennialism?
1: A uh, really good question. My understanding is that what, what you'll read is that the earliest known view was premillennialism, and it would be an historic premillennialism, which in, in the difference between historic and dispensationalism essentially is essentially one is pre-trib, the mm-hmm. other is post-trib, if you want to think of it like that. Yep. So pr- the pre-tribulational rapture stuff is really a, a novel idea that nobody believed in the early church. Yep. Nobody believed it really for the first 1800 years of the church, frankly.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, yep. so yep. historic premillennialism is just, uh, Jesus will return right before the millennium and then usher it in. Now there might be some kind of tribulation or whatever, but people will live through it. So, you know, church fathers that go back really early, Justin, Martyr, Irenaeus, they both seem to be his uh, premillennialists. But that said, Justin actually says that there are other known views and that the church wrestled with those and they didn't, you know, exclude each other from, you know, call each other heretics or whatever, because they held to them. Now, he didn't name what they were. Uh, so you kind of have to go to two, three hundred years, I suppose, into the church before you start getting uh, what we would probably call millennialism, probably through origin and then especially through Augustine and his two cities. Um, so both of these views have been around for a very, very long time. And then postmillennialism is really kind of a offshoot, I would say of amillennialism and it was something that kind of arose with the puritans in in america really jonathan edwards and some of those kind of guys and then it took off and kind of died and and has a has really had a resurgence in the last probably 20 30 years i suppose
0: Okay. Okay. And then um, I don't know I have this question, but I don't know if it makes sense to answer it now before we dive into this, but I've heard you talk about the seven cycles of revelation and how, how it's repeated. And do you want to maybe explain just briefly a little bit about that before we get into this concept of all millennialism?
1: Yeah, I think this is a really important question. Something that I think definitely fits here. Okay. So, because Because the issue is when you look at Revelation 20 and what we just read, right before it, you have this war. And then, you know, verses four through six, it, you know, in my view, it's moving the scene from earth to heaven Mm -hmm. for three verses where you have the reigning of the saints. Other people would say that that's a different kind of reigning, reigning on earth. But that's my view. But whatever the case is, verse seven um, talks about another war. And so the question is, how should we read this? these psych you know, these, these verses end of 19, a war, then a millennium then people in heaven, and then another war with Satan. Uh, and so there's two basic ways of reading the book of revelation. One is the way that I think most people read any kind of a novel or whatever, which is linear chronological. So one chapter falls, the next falls, the next falls, the next. Now, when you do that, uh, chapter 19, then comes before chronologically chapter 20. And this is where you get premillennialism from. It's a very straightforward reading of a chronological way of thinking about Revelation. Mm-hmm. So what that means is you have a war um, and we'll just leave everything else before it off <laughs> to make it as easy as we can. You have a war at the end of 19 and then the millennium comes. So this war has to be before the millennium on a chronological reading. And then you come to chap- verse seven, in chapter 20, and then you have another war. So there seems to be another war after the millennium. Okay. So that's a, that's just a chronological, straightforward verse follows verse reading. But the thing is, this is not the only way that the book has been read. In fact, our earliest known commentary it reads it cyclically. And I forget, I forget it's Victorinus or there, there's a couple of kind of rather obscure church fathers that that did this, but, and they did it to varying degrees. So we don't all read it the same way like this, but it it has to do with literary clues that you find in the text itself. So in other words, you wouldn't just, you wouldn't just read it like this because you're making it up. You, you have to have reasons for doing that. So I'll give you a couple of things that to me are pretty powerful and interesting for this. So people need to be aware of, so it's a literary device that's called a chiasm. So imagine the letter X and in the letter X, you have kind of the two, two tips on the top, two tips on the bottom and they cross in the middle. So the crossing in the middle um, is would be a middle point for literary structure. So if you say the first will be last and the last will be first.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So you have um, the word first begins it and it ends it and then last is in the middle. Last becomes the center part of that structure and the outer part becomes the first. First will be last, last will be first. So it's a reversal of the order. Now you can do this for all kinds of reasons, but one of the main reasons is in an oral tradition, you want to remember things and so you're repeating them. That's really, really important because if if chiasms are repetitions and you find some sort of a device like that in the book of Revelation, then you may not have a chronological reading after all. You may have it folding in on itself so that it's repeating things that it's already said. So it turns out um, scholar named Warren Gage, professor at, a, I don't even know where he's at now, I think Knox Theological Seminary or Reformed Theological Seminary, somewhere down in Florida. He might even be retired by now, but he did his dissertation. I believe it was on the Gospel of John. And then on he he did a whole bunch of work comparing the gospel of John with the book of Revelation. Now why would you do this? It's because we believe that the same author was eventually responsible for writing the final, you know, pieces of what we have for both of those books. It's just like Luke Luke and Acts, you know, Luke yeah. wrote that book and then he wrote Acts and actually the book of Acts is very well organized into two volumes as a chiasm. So what I mean is his chiasm is geographical. So he starts with the birth of Jesus in the Roman empire. Then he moves to Jesus's ministry in Galilee, which is way north in Israel. And then he has Jesus coming down south uh, through Samaria and Judea. And then he ends the first book in Jerusalem. Well, Acts reverses that. So it starts in Jerusalem and then it goes to Judea and Samaria, and then it goes to the ends of the earth. And he's doing this very intentionally so that you can see that the center of what he's doing in the two volumes is the resurrection and the ascension of Christ.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. That makes sense.
1: Yeah. The book of John and and revelation are actually doing the same thing and they're working with each other, uh, which is in, I mean, that's a podcast in its own right. It's completely mind boggling, (laughs) but uh, just for revelation itself, He went through and he discovered a chiasm that I think has something like 50 or 60 different um, iterations to it. Mm -hmm. And the center of that is Revelation 12, 9 and 10. And this is really relevant to what we're thinking about here in Revelation 20, because it basically says the same thing. It talks about the dragon, the serpent, the devil and Satan who is thrown down, who deceives the whole world. That's the very center of the book of Revelation. If you read it as a chiasm, well, that's exactly what we just read in Revelation 20, same exact language. Yeah. Okay. So on either side of that, you have the martyrs, uh, you have the devils trying to prevail, but the martyrs overcoming, you have a war in heaven, you have uh, the dragon being thrown down to earth, you have a woman fleeing into the wilderness, and then you have a woman with wings. This is going on all the way to the beginning of the book. It's It's astounding that anybody could write something like this. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: But what that means to me is that we have a sign there that you're not supposed to be reading this book chronologically. So that's the first thing. And then you have things like, uh, I just brought up, you know, Revelation 20, verse 7 through 10. This is where Satan is loosed. And then right before chapter 20, you have this war in chapter 19. Well, it turns out you also have another war in chapter 16. That's where the word Armageddon appears. You have another war in chapter 14, and they're all using very similar language, which makes it seem like maybe they're actually all talking about the same event, the same war. Mm -hmm. So this is where you get the idea of cycles coming in. Okay, So basically the book can be read as a series of three or four or seven cycles. I, I tend to like the seven cycle idea mm-hmm. where you have, you know, basically chapters one through three are kind of an introduction. And then I think it's four through six and seven through 10 and 11 and through 13 and 14 through 15. And, you know, it goes all the way to the end. And the general idea is that each cycle will begin at a point earlier, And then it will finish at the end, at the second coming. Now, they don't always necessarily have to start at the beginning when Jesus was there. But interesting, you know, I just said the center of this is Revelation 12. Well, that one does begin at the beginning because it's the birth of Christ. And then it ends at this great war. And I believe that chapter 20 is doing the same thing. So I believe that chapter 12 and chapter 20 are very much paralleling each other, which is why the language is so similar of this four titled um, entity called satan who's thrown down and he deceives the world. Exact it's the exact same language. Yeah. So if chapter 12 is talking about the birth of Christ, then chapter 20
2: probably is too. I was I was wondering cuz I've heard um from premillennial millennial friends and and everything they take the uh, revelation 119 where it says therefore write the things which you have seen the things which yeah. are and the things which will take place after these Kind of as instructions on how to read the Bible, right, uh, right. Read, read Revelation as literally chronologically. How would you interpret that within the all millennial position?
1: Uh, I would just say that it's a figure of speech. I mean, he's going to be talking about things that are present, things that are past, things that are to come. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, and the reason why I wouldn't take it as an outline for the book is because what I've just given you in terms of the, the literary right. structure of the yeah. rest of the book. You can assume mm-hmm. it, but you're not if you take that view, you have to deal with these other literary devices. And that's
2: what they won't
1: yeah. talk about. That
2: well, and when I read it, I always struggled going through it chronologically because I'm like, oh man, a third of the world is gone. And yet right. somehow in right. the chapter, people are still there. I'm like, yeah, man, there's like superhuman. What is going on here?
0: Those are the those are the Nephilim mark. Yeah. <laughs> It, it does totally make sense um, looking at it this way. And so as, as we're talking about this all millennial view, do you want to set the framework for what this view believes that, right, we are in the millennium right now, we are in those thousand years? Because when I was digging in a few years ago, I think the biggest thing that woke me up was the term Thousand there that the the root word for that actually means it's the plural for uncertain affinity and that like mm. when I saw that it literally like changed everything for me I'm like okay so this is not a literal thousand years like everyone says um, right. so I think just understanding that framework of this this all mill view is that we are in this millennium now not not a set thousand years because Christ is reigning we we know right. he's reigning right and we are a part of that we are his body right his hands and feet he is the head sitting um at the right hand of the father so with that view i think looking at revelation 20 it changes everything
2: and i like that too cuz i mean with that literal 1000 when you go back into the old testament and it shows up right like god owns the cattle on a on a thousand, thousand hills. hills yeah we we don't take that as literally there but somehow we want to superimpose that onto revelation but it holds true when when you understand it's a figure of speech like you said mm-hmm.
1: well some people do want to take even that literally maybe maybe not the thousand hills although who knows <laughs> but uh you know <laughs> a, day, a day is like a thousand years i've heard people say well see this is the the day in a thousand years earth is seven thousand years old sort of thing so um people will do that but i I agree with you guys that, and especially when you look at the other numbers in the book, almost every number in the book of Revelation is symbolic. I'm not going to say they all are, but almost all of them are very meaningful. The number seven is everywhere in Revelation. Um, mm-hmm. 144,000, the number 12, roots of 12, those kinds of things, they're everywhere in Revelation. So Four, it 60, makes sense with the rest months. of it. Yeah, Exactly. Twelve yeah. is a very important number for all kinds of reasons. It's actually related to what we're talking about here, believe it or not. So, okay, you said that Revelation twelve
0: is like Revelation twenty. So, Revelation twelve, we know that that's like the birth of Christ, right? That is, uh-huh. that's the beginning. So, then Revelation twenty, I'm looking at the the first verse, and I saw an angel come down from heaven. Is that angel
1: Jesus? Yeah. So let's let's go right through the the question. So. I have a whole series i did i did two sermons on this you can go to our website at rbcnc.com our church's website and you can look up the revelation twenty one through three sermon and then uh the revelation twenty uh four through six sermon okay and I have a series of questions there that are just the natural questions that you would ask as you're reading through the text first question is who's the angel comes in out of heaven right you makes sense to ask that question. My answer is that when you compare this with the gospel of John, who's the one that comes down out of heaven? It's Jesus. He makes this, he he says it explicitly in the gospel of John. In fact, he might even say it explicitly in the parallel part of John that's in revelation, but I can't remember off top of my Hmm. head. Um, but the one coming down from heaven is that's Jesus own language of himself. Now, why would he be called an angel? And my opinion is I wrote another book on this called the angel of the Lord. Uh, with a a pastor friend of mine, that the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is Christ pre-incarnate. And so to use angelic language of him in Revelation is, we have all kinds of precedent for that um, in the Old Testament. So that's my opinion. And so when did he come down out of heaven? Well, if it's paralleling chapter 12, then he came down out of heaven when he was born of the Virgin. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: So many questions there. Um, I mean, it makes sense. It really does. Um, Because having the key to the bottomless pit, um, I mean, I'm trying not to get ahead of myself because getting to like what that is, but the angel of the Lord, I do have that book of yours too, by the way, Um, really good. And in this community, the Rooted Truth community, we actually were just going through all the books of, of the Old Testament and New Testament and finding Jesus in all of them. And that was mm-hmm. something that we talked about a lot of, yeah, he is the angel of the Lord. Um, so, so, yeah, so then, you know, going on with having the key to the bottomless pit, that that's, there's language of that in Revelation 9 too, right?
1: Uh, and Revelation 1 as well. So let's take these in order. Uh, what is the key that he holds? And then we'll ask, where is the bottomless pit? And then we'll ask, what is the chain? Mm-hmm. Okay, so first of all, is the what's the key that he holds? So Revelation 118, he says, I have the keys of death in Hades.
2: Mm.
1: What does that mean? Well, it means that he's conquered death in, in Hades. He's the one that has risen from the grave. And when we see what this abyss is, we're going to see, oh boy, this is really related to that. So this is, this is language of Jesus having the power to do whatever he wants to with those who are in it. um, Freeing those in the Old Testament days who went to Hades because um, the sacrifice had not yet been made for them. Now they, they weren't punished in Hades. They were in paradise side of Hades, but um, nevertheless, they were there and and uh, Jesus has this power, and then in Revelation nine, you know, the, there's this releasing again of Apollyon or Abaddon or whatever, and the the angel there is holding the keys. So, this is language that, in fact, you find it in Revelation three seven as well. The key of the house of David. He he ta- talks about this to, uh, maybe the Church of Philadelphia. I don't remember, but um, and then in Matthew sixteen nineteen, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. So this is all all very important language that I think we need to take into account instead of just kind of looking at the one verse and just making things up according to what we think that it might mean. <laughs> okay, so that's the keys. Now, the, the next one, the bottomless pit, what is bottomless pit? This is probably the most interesting thing in the whole text to me because for whatever reason, I have no idea why English versions do this. It's like the only time that they translate this word as bottomless pit in the entire Bible. Every other time they translate it, it's the word abyss mm-hmm. or something like that. Why would they do that? I think it's because they have some sort of a preconception of what this what this place is, and they're letting their theology dictate their translations. But The thing is, the abyss or the deep in the Old Testament is what this word is. It's the word of in um, Greek. And so, well, what is that? Well, what's really strange about it is that, the abyss is where the Leviathan lives in the Old Testament. He lives in the deep. And the Leviathan is the dragon. And what has John just called Satan in this very place? Or what will he call him in you know verse two? He calls him the dragon. So wait, 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 what? He's being thrown into the place that's his home? I mean, think about that. Let that sink in for a minute. If the abyss is where the Leviathan actually lives, then it's kind of like he's being thrown into house arrest. Wow. It's a totally different idea than what I grew up with in, which is that he's thrown in some kind of a, you know, punishment prison or whatever, where he's locked away and he can't do anything whatsoever.
2: Doug, would this be the same place as like Tartarus and 2 Peter 2, or is this completely different? So... Tartarus I think is talking about they're they're related
1: when you when you kind of look at an old conception of a map of the underworld what you have is mm-hmm. you have this realm of the deep and the deep surrounds Hades okay and there's yeah. there's ways into Hades through the deep uh, through the abyss it's a watery place the abyss Hades is a place of fire or whatever that's kind of conceptualizes inside of it and so, Tartarus is the lowest part of Hades. Hades is itself a huge land with many places um, that's kind of divided, you know, think of the Greeks and the river Styx, and and some of them go to judgment on one side, and others that go to Elysium mm-hmm. on the other side. Uh, the Hebrew conceptions, I think, pretty similar to that actually. So mm-hmm. they're related, they're both in the underworld. And we're dealing also with metaphor too, uh, because leviathan in that case is a chaos monster and that kind of stuff but my main point all is, that yeah yeah my main point is that he's he's being put into a place that is actually his home in the old testament <laughs> which now would make, he's make sense. chained there yeah he's chained there that's the difference okay, okay. so what does that mean what does it doesn't mean that he's locked up with a physical chains he's not a physical being he's a supernatural entity and so you need to go and you need to read other, other passages where there's chains related to supernatural entities. So for example, Job 38, 31, can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cores of Orion? Well, Pleiades and Orion are constellations. Those are viewed as they're deified by the peoples of the old world. Yeah. And here they are bound with chains. What does that mean? Well, I think it means that they have to they have to now um uh run according to the laws that God has dictated over them through the covenant. And so I think that that's what's going on here with the binding of Satan is that there are there's laws that he's not allowed to break, which bind him from doing the things that he would want to do. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Which is in the place here. where cool. it is his home. Yeah. <laughs> I see a need too, because this is, I mean, one way of showing authority is by ordering things properly. And so you have God, who's a God of order, showing his authority by, hey, Satan, this is this is where you should dwell. This is this is the proper dwelling place. Just like when the the demoniac, you know, he was cleansed of these demons, he goes into the pigs. Where do the pigs go, they go into the water where they belong. Like this is God showing, hey, I'm in authority, I'm in charge here. This is where you belong. Let me put things back in their place. Let me make my enemies a footstool kind of thing.
1: Exactly. I think this comes up then in the next couple of ideas. So the first one would be, he's seized, right? What does it mean that he's seized? Who's seizing him? Well, it's the angel who's coming down. Mm -hmm. Well, if the angel coming down is seizing him. And that's the first coming of christ then there's the seizing takes place then well how does that happen well through the authority that christ wins now we this this can be a little hard for people because jesus is god and so in one sense he has all authority but in another sense he he um he gave up his authority when he came down here as one of mm-hmm. us so that he could win it back as one of us because the authority was originally given to adam um, over this earth. And he kind of abdicated that authority when, when him and Eve fell into sin. So Jesus has to win back this authority. That's the authority he talks about at the end of the great commission, right? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And Jennifer, you were talking about that a little earlier, right? With Jesus is reigning now. And that's the idea. He has now seized the dragon. Mm-hmm. He has thrown him down, cast him out, and then the language there is the language of binding, binding. Well, what's that? Well, uh, again, he's not. It's not like physical chains that are around his his wrists or something like that. Binding is the language that Jesus actually says that he he ha- did with the strong man. If you go and read the Beelzebub stories in the Gospels, I have bound the strong man. Well, when did he do that? So I think he's doing it as his ministry is unfolding. Every time he casts out a demon, he's proving his authority and his power to bind whatever he wants. And then uh, when he finally descends to hell and then is raised from the dead, he gets the keys. That's when the, the binding is in becomes in full effect.
2: Which so it was sense. like a process. And then, yeah, he locked it up at the yeah. resurrection. Exactly.
0: Which doesn't mean that he can't tempt us you know still all the other things because you have that just the concept Mm of hey you have this mob boss in a prison somewhere he's still running the show but he can't do certain things but he has his minions doing it for him Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Hmm.
2: interesting
1: yeah i mean you're 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 like anticipating every single thing here i love it it's fantastic
2: yeah and you know, talking to uh, friends of mine, my brother-in-law, who holds a more historic pre-millennial view. That's that's the the two things that I'm sure we'll get into, but that we we uh, in gracious love and and enjoy. <laughs> you know, we have fun debating one another, and we've done it all week, knowing that I was coming on here with you. But um, you know, we 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 have a different way of defining deceiving the nations and and bound. You know, he sees deceiving the nations that that, that hasn't occurred or um, the, the binding hasn't happened yet because he looks at the world. He's like, look at how chaotic it is. But I look at it through like the Deuteronomy 32 lens and it seems yeah. like the nation was allotted to Christ and then all these others were disinherited. But after the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Man, look at that mustard seed. It just bursts forth. And all of a sudden, those, disp- those uh, disinherited nations, they come back into the fold of Pentecost. At least that's how I interpret it. And the language of nations is vastly different in the New Testament from the Old Testament. They're not in opposition anymore, but they're, they're part of the family. And so I, I personally am like, I have a hard time believing that, that Satan isn't bound. Because of looking at the nations and the Gentiles are now a part of the family of believers.
1: Yeah, I love it. I I think that the Deuteronomy thirty two worldview are you, are your listeners familiar with that?
2: Yes. Yeah.
1: Okay. Good. So, um, yeah, when I first came across that, I like I was like, oh man, this is this is perfect for what I already believe. You know, I'm it's exciting. Use this it's down it's the road. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so let's uh, let, let's unpack a few things here that that maybe some people haven't considered before. So I do the most obvious one, which is verse three. So he's thrown into the pit. This is where he was, the abyss, right? It's shut and sealed over him. And then it gives a, a purpose clause. Purpose clauses so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. And that's all it says. Yeah. It doesn't say anything else and in fact when you go back to revelation 12 it talks about again how satan is the great deceiver of the nations so that that's a very important parallel so what does it mean that he might not deceive the nations any longer so again it, in kind of the view i grew up in <clears throat> this binding is absolute satan is not allowed to do anything in fact there's no more sin on the right. earth no yeah. nobody's dying anymore yeah. people live to be a thousand years old yeah yeah it's a beautiful um, era yeah it, and my my opinion of those passages that people bring to the millennium is that that's actually talking about the eternal state. It's not talking about the millennium. That's the new heaven how, and new earth. Correct? Exactly. And how can you say that? It's because I think people are bringing to the millennium eternal state passages, and then they're reading them into this passage, which is the only one yeah. that actually uses the word millennium. Mm-hmm. And all it actually says is that he can't deceive the nations any longer. That's right. it. Okay, so in my view, Satan can roar around like a uh, prowl around like a roaring lion all day long, and not deceive the nations simultaneously. <laughs> he can be doing terrible things on this earth and not deceiving the nations simultaneously. I think it's exactly what we have throughout the New Testament. So, let's think about let's get a little more specific from what you brought up, Mark, with um, Pentecost and what happens at Pentecost. So again, I, I'm actually glad I brought up Luke Acts because Luke Acts is is this um inverted parallelism that's centering on Jerusalem. What you end up having is kind of a remarkable thing where the church is then going to emulate what's what happened in Jesus's life in an inverse sort of a way. So Jesus dies in Jerusalem, and he he's, he rises in Jerusalem, and then he returns in Jerusalem through the Holy Spirit, and then people are raised from the dead. And then they go out into the world and they start to do the things that he did, but they're doing it in the rest of the world. Yeah. So why does that matter? Well, because um, at, at Pentecost, it's very clear in chapter two that there were Jews from all the nations that were gathered at in Jerusalem at Pentecost that heard Peter. Why Why would you even bring that up? Who cares? It's because those people are representative of the places that will end up being reached with the gospel later on
2: would you also just qualify it would you qualify that as um as uh what's the verb um or the the word I'm looking for the inclusion of the gentiles or um the fullness of the gentiles is that referring to pentecost
1: yeah, it's the beginning of it because it's going to yeah. start in Jerusalem, right? So, you know, a salvation begins with the Jews, Paul says, but it spreads mm-hmm. outward from there. And thats I think that's exactly what we see, even with the people at, at uh, who came to Jerusalem for the feast and then mm-hmm. went back to, you know, Galatia or Greece or Rome or wherever they were at, they ended up starting churches there. And who'd they end up, you know, eventually reaching when once the apostles came there and even probably even before that, is the Gentiles start to be reached with the gospel as well. Yeah. So yeah, it begins there, but
2: and at the same time, this would be the 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 lost tribes of Israel coming back together, correct? As as some would say. As
1: some are saying, yeah. But I don't I don't take that only people that are being saved are the lost tribes. I think that all the peoples right. of the earth are being yeah. saved. So yeah. Um But the point is what people don't recognize is something incredible happened at Pentecost that hadn't happened ever before. So prior to the day of Pentecost, you had to become a Jew Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and take on that old covenant and and all that that entailed, be circumcised, Mm -hmm. become, come under the law, all these things in order to be saved. That was the covenantal arrangement that God had made. Gentiles were not being saved. Unless they came into contact with Israel somehow. Yeah. Now, you, that happens, right? You get like the name in the Syrian is the leprosy and he goes back as right. a saved guy into Syria and whatever, but he came into contact with them and, and it didn't spread. It
2: had, yeah.
1: And a lot of this has to do, I think, with actually turf wars uh, that, that uh, Canaan was Yahweh's turf, whereas the other gods held the turf of the other nations. And so he didn't have a legal right to go into those places and free people. They had to come to israel in order for that to happen so divine Council world really really helps people to be able to grasp this i think
0: yeah i agree so it's so that's the deceiving of the nations
1: right exactly absolutely okay. and this is where paul in uh, act 17 talking to the athenians and he's like yeah people have been groping around in darkness Now, really isn't it that god has been right near you the whole time but that's because you've been deceived and i'm here to tell you that their power has been broken um Christ now is ruler in heaven and on earth. He has the right to take anybody out of the kingdom of darkness and bring them into the kingdom of light that he wants to. That is what's new. And that is exactly what Revelation 20 verse 3 is saying, so that he might not deceive the nations. It's not saying every single person on earth will be saved. It's saying that the nations will no longer be able to be under the dominion of Satan and his tyranny to keep them in darkness. The church can go anywhere. It doesn't have to be in a temple confined in the city of Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. And that's what we've been seeing for 2,000 years. I mean, yeah. if you understand what you're looking at, you realize, oh, yeah, that's, that's, it's been happening. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. How,
2: how, uh, I think it's a uh, Revelation 12, maybe it's 20, but it, it talks about there will be, a releasing of Satan, right? And then there will be a short time given to him to deceive those nations again. Should should that be taken figuratively? Do you take it figuratively? Or is that like, hey, we're going to crank up the heat. And at the very end, right before Christ comes back, I mean, this is like worldwide per- persecution. I know there's, we're talking, you know, is that uh, he doesn't even get started and Christ comes back and he's like, judgment, end of it. <laughs> or is that a period? Well of maybe, time that it's maybe.
1: Like, I don't Let, let's let's save that for the very end. Let's try and go through this in oh, order. Good. We'll and then we'll finish with that. I think that's a good place to finish. Yeah. Uh, I any more thoughts about the first three verses there of chapter 20?
0: No, it makes sense. It really it really makes sense to me, especially when you're looking and you're paralleling it with chapter mm-hmm. twelve. Um and just understanding that's what it means to deceive the nations. And yeah, that the Deuteronomy 32 worldview, um, the one that late Dr. Michael Heiser talks so much about, and I've read a lot of his books too. Um, I think it's imperative to understand that view in understanding this passage. Um, so I'm really glad that you brought that up as well. Yeah. Um, so well, let me
1: go one other place here uh, yeah. as I'm remembering it to talk about the length of the millennium.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: so in my understanding i said at the very beginning i think that you know just because the word millennium isn't used anywhere else it doesn't mean that it's not talked about Mm -hmm. my opinion is that it's referred to in different ways with different numbers even in the book of revelation so chapter 20 is paralleling chapter 12 we have a couple of different numbers in chapter 12 i think one of those is three and a half years and i think one of them is 42 months or something like that
0: yep
1: and so uh what's three and a half years? It's half seven. What's 42 months? Half seven. Another. It might be also 1260 days. What's that? Half seven. They're all the exact same thing, but they're different ways of thinking about it. So one is years, one is months, one is days. You get a different idea in your head, just using those three terms.
2: Mm-hmm. So and that would be the same.
1: as time times half a time. Times and half time. Yeah, that's the fourth one. And I think there's, end of Daniel you might have a little slightly different number there, but Um, why, how could this possibly be relevant? Well, first of all, because chapter 20 and 12, 12 are parallel, so they may very well be the same thing. Second of all, uh, where does that come from? So I think that it comes from Daniel's 70 weeks in Daniel chapter nine. Now this is my take on this, and this is a kind of a classic millennial take. Everybody has problems with this. Everybody, all millennia views have problems with this. We all try to work it out the best we can. So Daniel gives 70 weeks. And essentially what you have uh, in all the standard views, except dispensationalism, which sees it exactly opposite, is that the 70 weeks find their culmination at the end of 69 and a half weeks at the death of Christ. So in other words, you have six, a week is, is seven years of time. Daniel's the idea is Daniel's prophesying like in 480 something BC or whenever he's prophesying, and then there's a there's a stopping a starting of the clock. It maybe that's when the people return to uh, yeah. Jerusalem in you know Cyrus's day or whatever. You have 480 some three years or whatever it is of of uh, the unwinding of this clock, and then you have 69 weeks ending right when Jesus is born. Okay. So, these are literal, literal seven year periods of time. And then you have three and a half years of his ministry. Yep. And then he dies on the cross. Yep. And Daniel singles out this last week as this week where, in the middle of it, you know, a man will die and they make atonement for sin, all this kind of stuff. Dispensationalists read that as Antichrist, and the rest of us read it as Jesus Christ. Yep. Um, but then you have this problem, which is the second half of this last week, this three and a half period, this 1260 day period, this 42 month period, what are you supposed to do with that? Okay. So we all have to, we all have to either fudge or kind of try and figure out what's going on. So if you take it literally, then it had to have been fulfilled in, I don't know, 32 AD or whatever, but there's nothing there. We, there's nothing there. I so do have an opinion said, on okay, that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Some people say that it, it was uh, fulfilled in 70 AD, but yeah. Okay. Now you've moved out of literal, you've got yep. 40 years there. Yep. So, okay. If you're going to do that, then you might as well extend it farther yeah. than that. So my view is that the millennium is talking about the, the second half of that week, it's wow. a very long period of time. And it's a three and a half period, three and a half period that matches or emulates Jesus's three and a half period. But it's not the same three and a half period. Now, how, why would I say this? This is where the John Revelation thing becomes so really interesting. So I can't do this justice. All I can do is give you real highlights, high level view of this. The very beginning of John, chapter one, parallels in language to the very beginning of Revelation one. This happens with John 2 and Revelation 2, John 3, Revelation 3, all the way to the end of the book. All kinds of different literary word things that are the same. Guess what? It works backwards too. So the very last chapter of John matches up with the very first chapter of Revelation. Next to the last chapter of John matches the next to the the second chapter of Revelation. Next to the next to the last chapter of John matches the third chapter of Revelation. goes all the way to the end of the book. In inverse order, and you get a center in the Gospel of John, which is identical to the center in Revelation. The center in Revelation, we already said, is the this war in heaven and Satan is cast down. The center of John is same thing. Jesus says, um, "Now the ruler of this world is cast out, and I am lifted up." So cool. Exact same thing. Wow. So now you have to go, well, why? What? Why? So, my opinion is that it's the same thing as Luke, Acts. Luke is Jesus' side of this. Acts is the church's side of this. That's neat. Okay. Wow. John is Jesus' three and a half years. Revelation is the church's three and a half years. And what that means is that the millennium. And the three and a half years in chapter 12 are the same thing viewed from a different perspective.
2: Wow. How do so people many, say the Bible's boring? That's pretty cool.
0: Oh, so, yeah. many, so many places <laughs> to go with this. Oh um, my goodness. So a couple things, like here's, here's real quick what I think about Daniel, because I just did um, the past like six months like hard in Daniel, is Jesus's ministry starts the 70th year. Of Daniel and or the seventieth week of Daniel for three and a half years, and then in my like research and digging in, Stephen was the first martyr, which from what I can tell was in thirty four A.D. And if that puts Jesus dying somewhere in the year of thirty A.D., that was three and a half year time period before the Gentiles. Paul was then um or Saul at the time was converted into Paul to go reach the Gentiles. And so that three and a half year time frame, and so that made sense in my my head. But another question: the times times half a time. What is your in in Revelation twelve? What is your take on the Jewish Roman war? You know, there's a lot of preterist or partial yeah, preterist, yeah. and I and I feel like I fall, I kind of fall into that camp of like yeah, this yeah. partial. I'm,
1: I'm, I'm, I do too.
0: Um, and so. Yeah. You know, some people say, "Well, that's like the the woman being persecuted, and and then she's nourished for times, times, and half a time in the wilderness." Is would you say that relates to sixty, you know, sixty six to seventy AD, that three and a half year time
1: period? Yeah, the three and a half year time period of that is really interesting, but mm-hmm. I look at it as a type. I don't look at okay. it as the fulfillment of it.
2: Okay,
1: not just me. I mean, the Predators have some really good arguments, and for me, it really kind of goes back to the Olivet Discourse of Jesus, yep. yep, and especially how Luke breaks it up. I'm, I'm preaching through Luke right now, and so I'll be in the the second part of this. What happens is in, in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew, it's all put together in one thing.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so Jesus is outside Jerusalem and walks inside. He goes, hey, you see these stones here? And the disciples are like, yeah. And he says, <laughs> well, not one of them is going to be left on another. And so well, when's this going to happen? What's going to be the sign of your coming at the end right. of the age? Well, so what happens is that Jesus answers, I, th- I think that the disciples thought it was one question they were asking. Jesus breaks it down into two questions or maybe even three. Three, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so, but for sake of simplicity, what Luke does is he takes the first half of that and he separates it out from the second half of it in totally different chapters in order so that we can know that, yeah, these are not the same thing. Well, Matthew has it all together, and he's first says he first says, Well, here's when what these things are when these things are going to happen. What things? Well, when the temple's going to be destroyed in 70 AD. Here's what you look out for. All these things are going to happen. Now, in what I grew up in, people apply that to the tribulation in our future. Yeah. But the problem is that isn't what he's talking about. And Luke's completely, mm-hmm. I mean, he says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by the armies, by you know by all the of the <laughs> Like you couldn't get any more explicit. Um, Then the second half of that sermon, he's dealing with the parousia, the second coming. And that's where Mark's or Luke splits it into a totally different chapter. So how does that fit with um, what we just talked about? And your question was what again? (laughs) I don't (laughs) even remember.
0: Oh, the... In in Revelation twelve, that times times and half a time of relating to that Jewish Roman war.
1: Oh yeah, um, that's right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So just for me, seventy A.D. So I think you know, one other aspect of Revelation we haven't talked about is there's four different kind of main time frames that people will interpret the book. So you have the preterists; they believe that most or all of Revelation happened in seventy A.D. You have historicists; that's the view that over the course of two thousand years. Um, different epochs of church history have fulfilled the different parts of revelation. You have the futurist, which is what everybody's familiar with, which is the whole thing is still in our own future and great tribulation, all that kind of stuff. And then you have the idealist, which is really kind of the, the view that can incorporate all of those. In other words, an idealist would see 70 AD as maybe the greatest example of what's coming in the future, but it's already in the past. But it wouldn't say that that has to be the end point of, of the fulfillments because history repeats itself. And so a historicist who sees you know, terrible and great things happening during church history, well, yeah, they rightly do because history repeats itself. And it could very well be that the people who see terrible things in a millennium or in a tribulation in the future um, are right about that too. Why? Because history repeats itself. But at some point in time, there's an end game to this. And yeah, you know, maybe that now is the best time to bring that up, the which is um Mark, what your question was about the release of Satan. Uh because that is the end game to me. And it's where I think actually all the all the views can actually be unified, believe it or not, although we don't really like to talk about it very much. But
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh goodness. So yeah, so he's he's released for a short time. I mean let, let's be real for one second. I kind of feel like we may be in that time right now, but that's just me <laughs> yeah,
2: right It's not like a just an unlocking. I feel like it's more of a, a process I don't know. Yep. I could be wrong but. Yep. yeah so I, I
1: mean just to to speculate from as an amillennialist, non-dispensationalist, I think it's very I think it's I think it's very plausible that we are in this time now. Because of what I said earlier about the end of the age being an objective changing of the age of Aquarius and moving into the Greer, it's a totally different kind of an argument that ends up kind of bringing you to almost the same place that uh, dispensationalists are, but without all the charting out of all the days and what's exactly going to happen to writing a series of eleven books or whatever about it.
0: <laughs> I mean that makes sense. Even like give the last what 150 years, like the advancement of technology, and I know that this can go in a totally different direction, exactly. but I I feel like the last 100, 150 years has been crazy compared to the
2: last 2000. I have a question too, Doug. I don't know. This might come, it probably will take us in a completely different direction, Uh, talking about the millennium, the release of Satan, but how does this all tie into the man of lawlessness being revealed? Uh, The great apostasy, like what, what does that look like in the all-millennial approach. So I don't know that the all-millennialists have
1: really... I don't think they like to talk about this kind of stuff very much, to be honest with you. I know, but that's I, why we got to go there, right? <laughs> it becomes I, it becomes an idealist sort of thing, and then then you don't have to worry about it. Mm-hmm. So here's, here's something to play around with at, from me as an all-millennialist. If the book of Revelation is talking in cycles, and if these cycles are repeating themselves... And saying the same things in different ways, then you can actually have chapter, we we mentioned this earlier, uh, 20 verse 7 through 10, is actually probably being taken up with most of the book of Revelation, honestly, just in different different parts, different ways, different discussions. Now, the man of sin doesn't necessarily come in. In Revelation, that's more of a Thessalonians idea. But, you know, you have the beast and you have the harlot, and you have all these other kind of weird things that are going on there. And so for me, the way I think of it is this, that you have, well, just for one second, verses four through six, this is talking about the reign of the saints. I I view this as these people sitting on thrones, they're heavenly thrones. um, Judgment is committed to them. The souls of those who have been beheaded this is mm-hmm. talking about a spiritual resurrection. In other words, eternal life. Jesus gives eternal life to people. And when they die, they reign with Christ for how long? For the millennium, for the entire time that this is happening. Mm-hmm. They're not dead. They're alive right now. And and they're sharing in the, in the blessed glory that Jesus has won for them as he is himself king. So I see verses four through six is actually parallel to one to three. One okay. is the earthly part of it. The second is the heavenly part of this. They're just same time frame, but one is in heaven, one is on earth.
0: That makes sense. I don't want to I... talk
1: anymore about that. Go to the verse seven then. Uh, when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations. There we have that again, that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog to gather them for battle the numbers like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had been deceived them. was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, a couple things. If you go and you read the end of chapter 19, you'll see that the uh, false prophet and the, and the uh, what is it, the beast? are thrown into the lake of fire.
2: Mm-hmm. And here you mm-hmm. have the devil
1: being thrown in the lake of fire. My view is it happens all at the same time,
2: mm-hmm. Right.
1: because they're cyclical. It's not like they're separated by a thousand years, same time. Because chapter 19 is the end of the cycle, taking you to this war right here. Yeah. End of 19 is talking about this war, this right here. So, you know, I was reading earlier today, this idea that um, Satan tries really hard, but he can't do anything. There's no, There's no real battle going on here. It's just like, it's, it ends really suddenly. Well, maybe, but if chapter 19 and 14 and 16 have anything to say about it, maybe there is, there is a, maybe there's a lot more of a war here than people want to admit.
2: Right. Right.
1: So I think what's going on is that all the millennial views, whether they talk about it or not, they all have, they all have to deal with this. And this war right here comes at the end of the millennium. And nobody disagrees with that. You can't even on a cyclical reading, he's unleashed after the thousand years are over. So this war in seven through 10 is the final battle. Mm-hmm.
2: My mm-hmm.
1: opinion is that it's Armageddon. My opinion is at the end of chapter 19, this, the gas g- ghoulish meal of the vultures and all this kind of stuff. It's all the same right. thing. I mean, there's, uh, there's lots of places that we, lots of things we could do with this. Mm-hmm. Um, Gog and Magog is very interesting because uh, these seem to be principalities, yeah, as opposed to human rulers. Um, there's reasons for that. People can go read my sermon on that if they want to. It's really, really interesting. but that means that there's a spiritual battle here, maybe even more so than the physical battle.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Another thing to mention about this is that people will say, well, he's you know, some people will say, well,, uh, it has to be a complete deception of the world. Well, no, it doesn't. The church is right here. Right. So how can it be a complete deception of the whole world if the church is still here? There's still people saved. He's gathering all these people from the four corners of the earth against the camp of the saints. So there has to be saints in order for him to gather them to, right? You mean so not everybody no rapture? Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's just, uh, you know, there's just little tidbits in here that are really interesting that people need to read, maybe out loud and think about yeah sometimes that will help them. The beloved city is another phrase to take there. So, you know, a lot of people will say, well, this is talking about Israel and Jerusalem and a rebuilt temple and stuff like that. As an amillennialist and somebody who I think is trying to take seriously the language of Jerusalem throughout the book of Revelation, when it's talking about something like the beloved city and the saints, Revelation is talking about the church. It's not talking about Israel. When it's talking about Israel, it talks about the wicked city, Jerusalem, right? and it compares right. it to Sodom and Babylon and yeah. Rome. Yeah. That's what I was going to say.
2: It, <laughs> doesn't, it doesn't hold it in a great light.
1: Right, exactly. So my opinion is that this is actually, it's kind of a worldwide war that's fought on uh, at least the spiritual level against the church because the church is worldwide he's gathering the nations from the four corners of the earth meaning in and in, in in this view that i'm giving you we've never seen everybody come to christ in the first place yeah. it's people mm-hmm. out of the nations and that's called the nations rightly so but he's deceiving the nations so you know you could you could put a a covid um <laughs> specific example on this if you wanted to yeah. just to think about the worldwide aspect of this deception that came upon the world mm-hmm. um, that was so easy and but not everybody was deceived by it, but it was an attack on humanity. It was an attack on the church. And, you know, that it's one of many and probably probably more are coming,
2: <laughs> especially if we're actually living through this right now. I see that revelation, even 11, you know, it makes mention of a war. It's talking about those two witnesses, which I personally believe it's it's the church. We're a kingdom of priests. I think when we go back to, um, I think it's in Zechariah, that's very clear. Uh, but it says in verse 7 of chapter 11, when they have finished their testimony, the church, the beast that comes up out of the abyss, so there's that releasing again, will make war with them. And yeah, overcome yeah. them and kill them, and their dead bodies will tie into the great city, which mystically is called Sodom and Egypt, where also the Lord was crucified. Exactly. And so right there, you have it. it. It seems again, this like let's crank up the heat. But what I love is is the language almost has this. I think it's in Ezekiel, you know, where it's being given the the vision of the the dry bones. Can these dry bones live again? And it talks about these saints rising up and And being resurrected to life. I'm like, this is really encouraging, especially yeah. when it was written, how encouraging to the believers back then and and because this is inspired, how encouraging no matter when you read this within this age, right? Like this is to be encouraging. This is yeah. exciting stuff. I'm like, let's strap on the boots, let's put on carry our shield, our sword, and let's get after it. We are we're we're not the losing. The losers in this. We're victorious. We're co reigning. That's how I read it. Yeah,
1: I love it. And chapter eleven is another one that that's the end of a cycle. So it's parallel to this. Chapter twelve begins the cycle again.
2: Wow,
0: that's cool. So then, I mean that that what you were saying, Mark, kind of goes into another question I wanted to bring up is how does all of this this all mill view go and and fall into Daniel two with a stone that struck the image became a great mountain with the mustard seed parable, the parable of the mm. the yeast and growing, you know, into this, this kingdom of heaven, right. That, and, and this mustard seed that grows into this tree that fills the whole earth. How does that play into it? Because I mean, when I look at that, I'm like, we are a victorious church. Like, are we waiting for, for Jesus to come back or rapture us out to, to save us? In my opinion, no. I I mean, I I tend to lean towards like, we grow, we are victorious, and Jesus comes back for his pure and spotless bride. Mm-hmm. What's your take on that, Doug?
1: Yeah, so this is one other thing we haven't really talked about, which is kind of a view of um, the uh, how, do, how do we understand the two ages, right? So we talked about the two ages mm-hmm. a little bit. Jesus talks about the present age and the age to come, present evil age, and... You know this age to come. Now he contrasts two kingdoms. He talks about the kingdoms of the world. He talks about the kingdom of his father, the kingdom of God, his kingdom, whatever. Well, those are those are parallel parallel ideas. The present evil age and the kingdom of men is the same thing, and then the kingdom of God and the age to come is the same thing. Yeah. So most people view history it just linearly, just as a line, one thing after another. In the two age view, and this isn't exclusive to amillennialists, by the way, historic premillennialists like George Ladd completely held to this idea, which is that if you can imagine a, like a square, okay. You have a square and then on, you know, the, the upper side, as the square is moving to the right on the top, the line continues. And on the bottom on the left, the line goes to the beginning. The idea is that the bottom line of the square which extends beyond the square to the left at some point there's a beginning this is adam and eve Mm -hmm. and that bottom line represents the present age that ending of that line is the second coming okay the ending of the present age is the second coming Mm -hmm. everything in between it is part of this present age now the top line begins well it ends in eternity in other words it never ends but when does it begin well, it begins not at the second coming, but at the first coming. First. So what that means is you have this overlap of ages between the first and second coming. So you have the age to come and the present age here simultaneously. And this creates a paradox. How are you supposed mm-hmm. to understand this? Yeah. Are you only supposed to spiritualize it? Does it have any physical manifestations in the kingdoms of men? You know, we fight about these questions, even millennial positions, because people are like, well, I'm a triumphant post-millennialist who believes that um, the nations can be changed by the gospel sort of a thing. And Mm -hmm. so, like, that's very, uh, people are running to post-millennialism because they see, well, these are the only people who care about this world. I, I... i feel that man i i feel that but i don't think it's They're necessary about for influencing a...
2: politics and culture yeah, and exactly all that thing. Making, it's not only post-millennium good enough that just like <laughs> i think i'll come back now this is really good exactly like i i think we should be
1: involved in the world because the two ages overlap not because yeah. i'm somehow ushering in the kingdom of christ or something like that mm-hmm, right. so you know that if the two ages are overlapping then i will have evil at the same time that i have good i will have the church at the same time that i have satan i will have uh jesus in authority and conquering at the same time that satan has some authority and still deceives all this happening simultaneously but not in the same place and not at the same time mm-hmm. so the church is where jesus manifests his his kingdom uh through the gospel the nations the governments of the world that's where satan manifests his kingdom through the gospel but well, there's christians in the government and there's non-believers in the visible church,
0: yeah, true.
1: That's, that's why you need. It's why you need a separation of the sheep and the goats, and the wheat and the tares at the end, right? Yeah, that's what I was <laughs> just
0: gonna say. I mean, it's the same picture of the wheat and the tares growing together, a- and you know, you can't tell that it's a tear until the end. I love that parable. Exactly. Huh. So well, okay. I think
1: the two ages can really help people conceptualize how it is that you can have two things going on simultaneously. It's not a just a. It's not a two-dimensional view of or, or maybe a one dimensional view of history. It's a two dimensional view of history.
2: Okay. So with that, I mean, would you say that, um, what eschatology you hold matters to your orthopraxy, how completely. Yeah. 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 And, and I only asked that because yeah, right now, you know, um, It sounds like a lot of post millennial brothers who believe they can usher in, you know, the millennium. It'll get good enough. Christ will return. That they're they are. They're involved in politics. They're in call uh, into, you know, influencing the culture around. Then you have dispensationalists, who not all. So I I don't want to put an umbrella category, but they can tend to be at times more pessimistic i'm gonna get my guns i'm gonna have a bunker i'm just gonna wait through because the world's gonna get darker and christ will just come and and maybe not even a a pressure necessarily to evangelize because well in the tribulation they'll find christ and then i guess a millennial position could be that we become passive to in, in a way because we're like well Christ is reigning. He's he's victorious. He's the conquering king. So I too can just wait it out. I'll, I'll disciple. But I mean, how have you seen eschatology play a role in in one's orthopraxy?
1: Yeah, I think you laid it out really well in terms of the majority of the way I see people in the different camps behaving. I suppose. However, uh, there there are things in premillennialism and in amillennialism that can, if people understand their views rightly get them to act in the world today it might be for different reasons than a post-millennialist would uh but it, so in other words it's not like one view or the other necessitates either a go out and get them or a i just throw my hands up in the air and wait for jesus to come back on my rooftop sort of thing yeah they all they they can all have you know it just depends on how you're thinking through it yourself i suppose and and uh you know so they matter they have. Um, there's, there's logical outcomes to some degree of each of the views that make our orthopraxy, the way that we live our life um, a little bit different from one another, but I don't think that they have to be at the end of the day, all that much different. Although they certainly can be, it just depends on how people are thinking about it.
0: Yeah. I know for me, (laughs) you know, understanding it this way has changed a lot in my own life as far as like, there is this urgency to share the gospel, bring people to Christ because we aren't waiting for a third temple to be built where You know, I've come across a lot of people like, well, you know, there's still time because the temple's not built. The you know, the red heifers are just now getting ready, (laughs) right? Uh, right. And
1: so, coming from Texas,
0: yeah, exactly. Um, (laughs) And and I mean, even that—that I'm like, if God wanted that to happen again, would He really have to find Him in Texas? Like, I mean, it just doesn't make sense to me. But for me, (laughs) it—it changed everything as far as like, no, you guys, like, there is this urgency, like you know, look at, look at everything that's going on, but there's also like, we have this glorious hope, like, don't you want this? Um, And there's this empowerment too, right? Yeah. Like you're
2: empowered.
0: Yep. Yep. Absolutely. So, I mean, I just know that in my own life, but um, going back to this war, like the last war and Uh Satan being released If he is released right now, is the war, would you say this like spiritual war is going, has been going on? Let's say, I mean, I'm just throwing, saying this, I don't know if it's for like whatever, but 150 years, let's just use that example. Uh Has this war been going on or do you view this as like a quick war and it's over or is this war going on? Has it, I mean, is that what we're feeling with COVID with all of this stuff?
1: That's a great question. So when you read it by itself, verses 7 through 10, it seems like it's it's over in a second. It starts and it's over, yeah. right? He tries and he fails. And I think that's John's, I think it's a really great way, a really great literary device of showing how futile what he's doing really is. Yeah. Okay. But it's just a literary device, if I'm right. Because if the cyclical view is right, then we have all these other chapters that are telling us the same thing about the same war. Mm-hmm which means that it isn't necessarily as quick as what this makes it out to be. It's only quick from the perspective of futility of what he's doing. Okay? The perspective of God's in control of this whole thing. And that's really what the book is is bringing us to at the climax of the book, because what happens right after this, new heavens and new earth. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, so this isn't the end of Revelation, right? We, we've got this whole glorious climax that John wants us to see and what better way to do it than to say, "Yeah, this last war, whatever. <laughs> this is yeah. what really awaits us." Yeah. So okay. I, I think it's really interesting, um, Jenny, that you bring up 150 years because that's kind of what I've been kicking around too is an yeah. idea that yeah maybe that maybe this has been like a, he was somehow let loose. I've wondered if maybe some of these uh, satanic rituals and stuff like that they talk about with Aleister Crowley and whatever. Oh man. Like if they if mm-hmm. it wasn't like responsible for somehow ushering this in that was that was how god was going to unleash him again i could be totally wrong and state may not be unleashed for a thousand years i have no idea but we're living in some pretty weird times and so it i think it behooves us all to be thinking about could it really be now and what's frustrating to me is that millennials don't really want to ask this question Mm -hmm. and they don't think they have a reason to and that's where i think the whole uh, platonic month thing can really be a benefit to us to say, look, maybe there are some objective reasons for thinking that the end is now. And I'm not going to, I wouldn't, I would never die on this hill. I don't, I don't, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. I don't, I don't really care. But if, if we're right, we should be looking at what's going on. We should be thinking about the times that we live in. Jesus, Jesus told the people of his day to do that. Why would it be any different for us? Why should we just go on as if it's, it's just a business as usual? When maybe it's not, and I think to me that can create an urgency that we were talking about a little bit earlier, that you might find in some dispensational circles. It, it's urgent, time's urgent. We got to do something now. Yeah, you know, that yeah, maybe I, in, in a lot of all
2: millennialists they like. Nah, I don't really care. <laughs> just go like on. The with line it. Life is as normal. It is, is carved a lot deeper than it was even ten years ago. Now, I mean, it just. Uh, the world and the church. There used to be a a, a blurriness, I guess you could say, and an <laughs> overlap, uh, uh, an acceptance, and it just seems be, it's becoming mainstream to stand against Christianity. You know, uh, and I would I would say uh, what's even being called fundamentalist Christianity. What what we're teaching in our church right now, I would. I'd be called a fundamentalist Christian. Right. I'll take that as a badge of honor because of how I view order within the church, our 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 embracing of God's divine order when it comes to um, life, when it comes to sexuality, when it comes to male and female roles, and and all of that. Like that's called fundamentalist Christianity now. I'm not we're not progressive, you know. And so I feel like like that is that the line is being drawn and and there is very much an us and them more than ever we're not being uh the message isn't being as accepted so it's hard not to to say hey is is it just around the corner that christ is coming back because it it seems like the heat is being cranked up
1: it's funny the apostles all acted as if christ was coming back right now they talked like that right so why why shouldn't we talk like that as well? Whether we're right about it or not, we should talk right. like that. And I think we have good reasons to talk like that. Um, but it could be that this is just another birth pain. And it will mm-hmm. go away and come back worse. I, I have no idea.
2: Yeah. yeah, And we shouldn't change our faithfulness to Christ and the mission. Like, right. go make disciples of the nations, right? Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, even you talk about that, like hundred, 150 year timeframe, TV was invented. I mean, all these things that I, I absolutely hands down think that there is a, uh, the enemy has an agenda around all of that social media, everything. And you brought up, mm. um, Alistair Crowley, but I, I think it was, was it him, um, who did the Babylon workings was it like the late 40s or early 50s? Um, yeah,
1: was the Parsons and him or something yeah, like that? That yep, doing that?
0: yep. I mean, and a lot of stuff's gone down since then, even. Yep, so it's it's crazy to think about. So, I mean, I love it, I love digging into this stuff. <laughs> um, all of it, I mean, even even Genesis 6 and tying things back to, to that. I mean, um. I go into the church and talk to the pastors all the time. I'm sure Mark, you guys probably get sick of me, but I'm like, let's talk about this. Like, I'm so excited and understanding the supernatural um world. And and Mark did an amazing sermon over the summer, I think maybe the end of the summer of this supernatural worldview and understanding Genesis six, understanding Deuteronomy 32. And I mean, what that was probably the first time that's been talked about in our church, but I think it's happening. All over the place. Yeah,
2: and it people is. Uh-huh. Are
0: talking about it,
2: so it's so. Amazing. I even quoted you, Doug. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: it was good, but I mean, even my neighbor, who's got to be maybe in her sixties, early seventies, came up to me the other day at church. I, I mean, I just realized she went to our same church a couple months ago, <laughs> but she was like, "You understand this stuff, like." I, I don't know if Mark, you told her I, I, did, and I so did I he did. I did all these questions. <laughs> your I know. I'm like, let's go get coffee. You know, it's and people are craving this understanding. Is that happening mm-hmm. in your area too, Doug?
1: I think so. I think it's happening. I don't think this is just a an American thing either. I think this is a worldwide thing. It's really strange. I've I've often wondered um why God would want the divine counsel worldview to come out now. I mean the, the early church had some kind of conception of it and i think even like the puritans had something of it yeah. but nothing like what we've seen since mike wrote his stuff yeah and yeah. uh you know the, the groundwork for that was laid long before he wrote his stuff he's just doing a dissertation and bringing it to the masses as gandalf in middle earth like he used to, to talk <laughs> about himself and then you know god like um takes mike away from us yeah. but all of a sudden there's like uh it's an explosion since that has happened, even in the last year of people picking this up. And, you know, it, this has good and bad because if a lot of people that are untrained and, and um, have some pretty crazy theology that are picking this up and might be going anywhere with it. And that's one, that's one of the reasons why I love doing a show like this is because we can talk about it, but hopefully bring some grounding to people that they desperately need. Because, they, you know, we need two things. We need to be thinking about the supernatural and the strangeness that's around us. But we also need to be biblically grounded in Amen. solid yeah. theology and doctrine. And both of those things need to happen simultaneously. If you can get both, then I think amazing things can happen. If you only have one or the other, then I think that, you know, it's either going to be more
2: of the same or it's going to, I don't know what it's going to do. Destroy the church. I don't sure. know. Dr. Heiser always said, you know, let's talk about the strange things. Let's just not talk about them strangely. And I really appreciate that because we should yeah. be able to talk about um the blurrier things of life. We should be able to entertain a uh, conspiracy theory. But at the end of the day, the reason um that we 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 want to hold those uh very carefully is because we don't want them to actually principle our doctrine we want doctrine to principle those things instead and you know i not to get too blurry but with with everything that's happening nowadays with with social media what people are i mean are seeing in the skies uh bigfoot all those fun things like the supernatural worldview allows one to have a theological bucket to at least consider them exactly at least talk about them i i've I've talked to a lot of people lately who who, you know, they're they're saying, I didn't know there was a pastor I could talk to about these things. In a couple of yeah. weeks, I have two meetings with people that are like, we want to talk about these things. We just didn't know. We thought they were off limits. And it's right. like, if if they should they shouldn't be off limits at anyone, it shouldn't be the church. We should yeah. be the place where we can talk about these things and talk about the strangeness in a very theologically grounded way you know so i i appreciate these conversations for that reason get my mind wrapped around it and and to do it within the context of a, a multiplicity of of men and women who hold the bible as the inspired word of god and that's where we derive truth not doing it all, by myself that's i don't want to be anybody's bishop you know i want to i want to hold it very carefully um, with a multiplicity of leaders and those who have given themselves over to the Word of God.
1: Yeah,
0: absolutely. Well, said. well Doug, thank you. Um, I mean, yeah. I have a thousands no pun intended more questions <laughs> for you on this, <laughs> but um, I guess as we wrap up, like, is there anything you just want to leave the listeners? with like me, you know, maybe they're feeling confused, um, about this and, and maybe they're hitting this like cognitive dissonance in a sense of like, this Mm. is the only thing I've ever been taught. And I think like you said, to start us off, Doug, that's what, you know, you hadn't been taught these other things. Same thing for me. I've grown up in the church since, since day one, my parents came to Christ a couple of years before I was born. I'm so lucky for that. But the only thing I was ever taught in church was this, seven-year tribulation, the Antichrist is going to do this. You know, this is, you know, we'll be raptured out. Don't worry. Um, and so I, I know that there are some people who are are struggling um, with this. Would you have anything to say or encouragement for them?
1: Yeah, great question. Um, I guess the first thing would be that when you when you only hear that there's one view and all of a sudden you hear that there's more than one view, just try to understand that that's just an objective reality. Whether or not you knew about it or not, it's true. There's a whole bunch of other Christians out there that might have a different view than, than what you are aware of. They're not heretics for it. And you're not a heretic for for the view that you hold. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I really want to do with this whole general topic of eschatology is try and build bridges rather than uh, you know, blow the bridges up. Because the church has been doing that too much with all these views. Now, I went awesome. to a seminary that was started in the heat of kind of dispensationalism. And to this day, they still force every one of their professors to sign a, a statement of faith that they're um, pre-millennial. I'm like, well, Why would you do that? Why is that such a big deal? Well, that's the era that they came in out of the 50s. I don't think that that's a necessarily good thing. I think each one of these perspectives are bringing something to the table that the other people need to listen to. And so if, uh, you know, hopefully the three of us are comporting ourselves with grace towards other views. And that's what I would want other people to do too for this view, even though it might be hard to do that. And then the second thing is just, you know, it's hard to think about things that are new. So give it some time, let it sink in. You don't have to throw your whole world upside down just because of it, but you don't have to throw out everything that we're saying just because you've never heard it before either. Mm Give it some time. Think about it. The, you know, eschatology is one of the areas unless you unless you believe that Jesus has already turned in the second returned in the second coming, which is a heresy. Yeah, because he hasn't. Because it will be visible and everybody will know it. Loud coming. Yeah. Uh, the trumpet of the archangel. Unless you believe that, this is one of those maybe few areas where we can have a lot of disagreement with one another, and it's okay to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, we're living in a civilization that doesn't want to disagree about anything. We don't know how to fight. We don't know how to talk about things we we differ on. Um, it, it's just bad. So, the church the church needs to do a better job in terms of leadership on it. But people also need to do a better job of just listening and and trying to think through some things, and then going and doing your own study. There's lots of resources out there for all yeah. Of
0: this. Yeah. Absolutely. Do you have any and it's
1: okay to be confused, you know? It doesn't matter. it's all right. It's not the end of the world, even if you're just uh you're struggling with it for
2: the first time or whatever. It's all right. Yeah, you know. Do yeah. you have any recommendations of uh commentaries, books um that you would recommend for further study on all mill? Well, uh yeah. Um
1: uh, it depends on how deep you want to go. Uh let's see. I like the book The Returning King by Vern Poitras. It's a short little book on revelation. That's an all view and he does a really good job handling the very thing I just discussed with talking about dispensationalists, um, uh, especially them, um, with grace and stuff like that. That's probably the easiest one to understand. If you want to take a real, real deep dive, Greg Beal has a giganto commentary on revelation that's probably the most thorough thing I've ever seen in my life on any book of the Bible. It's insane. It's a shorter book. That's only like that long, you know, two inches instead of four. <laughs> it's the same thing. Um, those start taking you into some pretty deep dives, but you can sit down and read different texts that you're,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, you know, curious about or whatever. Um, let's see the, uh, I think it's called the conquering King or returning King, William Hendrickson. I really like his commentary on oh, yeah. Revelation.
2: Yeah. I've read that one. Um,
1: yeah. So those, those are the first three that come to
2: my mind, I guess. Awesome.
0: Awesome. I love it. Mark, do you have anything else?
2: No, thank you. This, uh, this was eye opening. I enjoyed it. I I'm excited. Maybe a part two at some point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, thank you.
0: I love it. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Doug. Um, I know everyone's going to be loving this. Where can they find you and, and some of your sermons and your stuff on, on whether it's revelation or other topics?
1: okay so i just i just re revamped my website and um it's my name uh, i used to have dougvandorn.com and then i let it go and i lost all the clout and everything and i was so frustrated mm. and then uh, this my, my latest one went down in august and i had to redo it but i think it looks a lot better so it's douglasvandorn.com and that's where all my personal stuff is like any any um podcasts i've done i've got those all linked there i've got a new podcast myself called giant steps. It's on the website there. You can hear that on Apple podcasts and whatever. I think it's on YouTube. We've only done like six episodes, so it's not very far into it, but awesome. Um, yeah, there's that. And then our church I mentioned it earlier. It's RBCNC. So that's initials reformed Baptist church of Northern Colorado, rbcnc.com. And basically any sermon that I've done is either linked to audio and most of them are linked also with PDFs. So I'm kind of one of these rare guys that reads his sermons. And so I manuscript them all out. And basically what you hear in the audio is what I've got on the paper. Uh, so uh, those are all free. You can download them. I've done Revelation. I've done Daniel. You know, I've done Genesis and John and Matthew. We're going through Luke. And and I've been a pastor for 22 years. So there's a lot of material there. And if it's a strange passage and I preach through it, I I've, I've probably dealt with it. So there's there's lots of good stuff for people to find there I
2: I even enjoyed your unseen realm catechism man I opened that thing I'm like this is a catechism (laughs) that was a
1: funny one so uh I had a short story of it is that I found Heiser just randomly I was preaching through exodus and came across an article that fascinated me on Deuteronomy 32 and I didn't know who the guy was and it had (laughs) nothing to do with what I was preaching so I didn't worry about it and like two months later I came across another article on it sounded just like the same guy. So I'm like, well, could it possibly be? And it turns out same guy, Michael Heiser. And I, I went and looked him up and saw that he did coast to coast all the time. I saw that he went down to UFO conferences and I'm like, I got to find out more about this guy. <laughs> so I did. And then uh, ended up interacting with him a couple times on his, um, you know, his blog or whatever. And then for whatever reason is I'm trying to think through all this stuff myself, knowing nobody, I mean, this is 12 years ago. I didn't know anybody who was thinking about any of this and I didn't know him and he was super busy. I'm not going to call him up or whatever. So that's how I actually started writing. That's how I wrote my giant book. Oh, that's The angel of the Lord came out of that. But in the course of all the writing, I thought, man, I think it'd be cool to have a supernatural catechism.
2: So it <laughs> was like, amazing, man. It's so down. cool.
1: So I wrote that and gave it to people in my church, and they said you should contact Heiser and see if see what he thinks about it. So I'm like, all right, I will. So I didn't. I really didn't know him. I mean, I interacted a couple of times, and and I got a I got an email back like right away, and it said, "Man, I love this. I want to publish this. All I was looking for was like a blurb. Like, could you give me a blurb <laughs> so I can still publish this?" And he goes, "I want to publish this." And then and then uh, it was like a half hour later as he keeps reading it he writes back and says, I can't publish this. <laughs> I'm like, well, why not? And I knew what it was is because the end of my catechism, I had like 140 questions in it. And the whole end of it is all on stuff. Like that's mm-hmm. all it is. It's exactly <laughs> what I did with you. I actually just took you through in those questions that we did. Yeah. You know, what's the key? What are the chain? That, that was my catechism. That's great. <laughs> and that's so, great. and so, uh, you know, I, I knew what his, what his unseen realm was. Cause he was giving out a free copy of it at the time. And I'm like, well, he doesn't want this. I don't think it's because he necessarily disagrees, but it just didn't, didn't have anything to do with what his book was about. Right. So I wrote it back and I said, Hey man, I gave it to you. If you want to publish this, you do whatever you want to with it. Just make sure I get the final say on it. So he actually, he was funny. Like he, he had some problems with my reform theology, but he was funny. Cause he goes, all right. I've cut it down to 95 questions in honor of Martin Luther.
2: <laughs> that was great.
1: And he reorganized it a little bit and they ended up publishing. It was very funny. I couldn't believe that was a, that was a really cool day.
0: <laughs>
1: that is so, so
0: cool. Um, yeah, I I love his work. I yeah. I honestly think one of my favorite books of besides supernatural is um, reversing hormone. Oh um, yeah, and just understanding that and what the New Testament apostles believe, like what they believed at that, what was their worldview. I love that book. So, um, another podcast I want people to go listen to that you were on Doug is the blurry, blurry creatures one. It may have been your latest one with them, the Prince of Darkness. The understanding, like Satan, the devil, Lucifer, all of that, like, who is this person? So, so good. So if you're listening to this and you have not listened to that episode, go check that out on the Blurry Creatures podcast. Um, So
2: can I do a shout out to another podcast? Yeah. Well, we're on it Uh, because they actually mentioned you, Doug, today, but Haunted Cosmos. I don't know if you guys are familiar, but they're a bunch of reformed guys. Uh, Great stuff. So you want to check out more blurry things. It's really cool. Again, what God's doing with, with people right now. It, it is. totally is. It is.
0: Well, Doug, thank you again. And um, I'm excited for this conversation to continue. Hopefully, maybe in the future, you'll come back if you have time. Um, I so, so appreciate it. And I know that all the listeners do as well. So thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. All right, guys, we'll have a great rest of your day. We'll see you guys.
2: You too. Thanks, guys.